You're going to love this. Just love it. Or your money back. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you. Once again, just as we are every weekday, from Pacifica Radio's 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, KPFK, 91.7 FM on the Oregon Central Coast, KYAQ, from Radio Sputnik. From RadioOrNot.com, from Indie Media Weekly, from FYI Nation, Netroots Radio, and the Progressive Voices Channel, this is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from Bradblog.com here with another jam-packed, exciting hour of radio for you. Also heard coast-to-coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, and, of course, on iTunes, where if you uh, download the broadcast from there, we hope you'll give us a very good review to help others find us as well. All right, well, let's see. Mike Huckabee jumps in. Uh, bringing the number of clowns in the clown car to number uh, to six total, I believe. There's expected to be as many as 20 jumping into the Republican uh, contest for the 20, 2016 presidential nomination. We'll get to a bit more on that in a moment. Chris Christie says, subpoena me, suckers. Careful what you wish for, Gov. Constitutional law expert Ian Milheiser will join us shor- shortly to discuss the uh, the big marriage equality case heard before the U.S. Supreme Court last week. This, you know, we were so busy, and I think so many in in America were so busy, frankly, with what was going on in Baltimore. Everything fell off the pages, uh, other than that. But uh, this huge uh, hearing for what will be the whole enchilada, very likely for marriage equality in all 50 states. That was heard before the Supreme Court last week. Uh, Not a lot of conversation about it with everything else that was going on, but, I mean, this is it. This decision that will come down in June concerning marriage equality may put this whole stupid nightmare behind us, this whole stupid nightmare. Well, it's going on, been going on for decades, obviously, uh, uh, in the gay community, but, you know, certainly since 2004, when gay marriage became uh, was weaponized by the Republican Party and used in 2004 um, as a trick to get people out to the uh, to the ballot box to vote for George W. Bush, whether they uh, actually whether that actually made the difference in 2004, I have some questions about. Given the fact that unlike so many in the media, I actually paid attention to what went on in Ohio back in 2004. I paid attention to people trying to vote in Ohio in 2004. I paid attention 
to the fact that there were fewer voting machines in uh, some places, and by some places, you know which places I mean, more voting machines in the primary than in the general election, which meant that uh, some voters were still still in line and voting at 3 a.m. in the morning at, uh, at Kenyon College, where the last vote was cast in Ohio. So I have questions still all these years later about uh, who actually won and lost in Ohio. Uh, the Republicans love to chalk it up to uh, to their gay marriage scheme to get people out to the uh, to the polls to uh, to get the big to call the bigots out to vote against gay marriage back in 2004. They think that made the difference. I'm not so sure. But in that uh, short, what are we, 11 years now since since the uh, 2004 election? Amazing how far we've come. Amazing that uh, marriage equality is now fully legal and recognized in 36 states. And after the um, the hearing last week in the Supreme Court, it may now be constitutional, legal forever in all 50 states. So we'll talk to Ian Milheiser about that. And Desi Doyen will be joining me in a little bit for our latest Green News report, wherein we will discuss the climate positions of the three newest Republican entrants into the 2016 nomination race, as well as the Pope's new statement on climate after the conclusion of a climate summit last week at the Vatican. But first, uh, speaking of new entrants into the uh, into the 2016 Republican nomination contest. Yesterday, we discussed the retired neurosurgeon turned Fox News darling, often confused Fox News darling Ben Carson getting into the race, as well as the failed politician and failed CEO Carly Fiorina. Today, we've got another new entrant as the number of GOP candidates is now six and climbing fast. So, Desi, do we have our GOP 2016 presidential race theme song music ready to go so I can announce the newest entrant officially? Why, yes, Brad, we do. Bring it. Yes, that's right. It's Michael Dale Huckabee, the 59-year-old former governor of Arkansas and candidate in the 2008 Republican presidential primaries. Way back before he joined Fox News and was still sane. Mike Huckabee would go on to win the Republican Iowa caucuses in 2008, finishing second in delegate count and third in both popular vote and number of states won. On March 30, 2015, Mike Huckabee supporters launched a super PAC to make preparations for his run for the presidential ticket in 2016. Until early January of 2015, Huckabee hosted a weekend Fox News Channel show called Huckabee. Imagine the gall of naming a show after yourself. Before ending the program to explore his 2016 presidential candidacy, then he moved on from April 2012 through December 2013. He hosted a daily radio program, The Mike Huckabee Show. What an ego. On weekday afternoons for Cumulus Media Networks on our public airwaves along with the rest of the right-wingers who dominate every inch of them. Huckabee is also the author of several best-selling books, an ordained Southern Baptist minister noted for his fundamentalist views, a musician, though not a very good one, and a public speaker. He's somewhat better at that. He's also a political commentator on radio's the Huckabee Report. Is there nothing he won't name after himself? There you go. Mike Huckabee in the race. 
Uh, as the clown car continues to fill up, you know, Mike Huckabee, back in 2008, he appeared, I remember this guy, I wrote about him at bradblog.com, that he seemed sane. He seemed normal back in 2008. He was criticizing George W. Bush. He was criticizing our wars overseas. Um, he was criticizing the Republican Party. He seemed like a dark horse, or you know, that he had a real chance. There's a reason he won uh, not just the Iowa caucuses, but went on to uh, to do uh, very well in that 2008 primary race. But now he's uh, gone over to the dark side. He joined Fox News. He spent a bunch of years there. And I guess the moral is you cannot work at Fox News for any amount of time without becoming crazy. And Mike Huckabee uh, right now is, uh, I just got to say, it, is crazy. Here was a, a clip from his uh, his announcement event today. We've lost our way morally. We've witnessed the slaughter of over 55 million babies in the name of choice. And we are now threatening the foundation of religious liberty by criminalizing Christianity <laughs> and demanding that we abandon biblical principles of natural marriage. No, nobody is criminalizing Christianity. Yeah, that's a pretty good stretch. Nobody. It? Yeah, it, it's well, it's. Yes, uh, you may not discriminate. We are, we do criminalize uh, discrimination. So you know when the uh, pizzeria in Indiana won't uh, sell pizza to a, a gay wedding, and by the way, they were never asked to sell pizza to a gay wedding that I know of. They just announced they would not. And uh, oh, here's my GoFundMe site. So send me hundreds of thousands of dollars. But other places, you know, the I think it was in Georgia, the uh, invitation marriage invitation company who who would not sell invitations to a gay wedding, the uh, the florists in Washington who would not sell fl uh, flowers to a gay wedding. There is nothing in Christianity that says you may not sell flowers to a gay wedding. At best, or perhaps at worst. It says you may not marry someone of the same sex. And, of course, it doesn't say that at all. But if somebody was forcing you to do that, I could understand. And you refused. And you got a ticket for refusing that. I could understand somebody saying they're Chris, uh, uh, criminalizing Christianity. But uh, printing an invitation to someone else's wedding? <laughs> if you refuse to do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, on the basis of who they are, on the basis of you don't like them. OK, yeah, I'm OK with that. I'm OK with uh, giving them a fine for that. But uh, anyway, uh, no. A and then uh, what was the other part, uh, Des, about uh, marriage? What, what, what the hell did he say there at the end? Criminalizing Christianity. Yeah. And demanding that we abandon biblical principles of natural marriage. No, natural marriage. Well, you know what? We'll we'll talk about all of that with uh, Ian Milheiser and the arguments before the Supreme Court. Natural marriage. Isn't it in the Bible? Isn't it a natural marriage uh, to have a couple hundred uh, wives? Yeah, it's also in the Bible of natural marriage that if you are raped, you, are, you must, must, must marry your rapist. Really? Yeah. That's in the Bible? That's in the Bible. That's in that same section where they say all Sounds, kinds of things yeah. about women being property. Yeah. Sounds natural to me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, we, we had an interesting conversation yesterday with Jimmy Dore, our, our friend from KPFK, uh, comedian, author. Uh, it, it's been sort of a running conversation that Jimmy and I have had since the uh, Char Charlie Hebdo attacks, since the massacre out there. 
wherein uh, I was, uh, of course, standing up for the right of free speech, the right of these cartoonists to uh, do whatever cartoons they want, really. Um, my only question is, why would you want to? Why would you want to uh, insult millions and millions, hundreds of millions of, of people of a certain faith simply for having that faith? And, uh, you know, I, I don't insult... Uh, uh, Mike Huckabee for believing, I guess he believes it, that, uh, you know, marriage should be between a man and a woman. Um, I insult him for being wrong about that, for claiming that that is something that's in, in the Bible, whatever. I'm insulting him. I'm not in going after his religion. Uh, and by the way, even if I were, Christianity is anything but an oppressed minority, unlike, say, uh, Islam in Paris where they have long been oppressed uh, there, the Islamic community there. So anyway, after the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre, I, you know, I, I asked, well, why would you want to? And uh, Jimmy and I have been going back and forth on this. <clears throat> he says satire is important. I agree it's important. Um, but I argue in this case the, uh, the satire was ill-placed. Nonetheless, they have a right to do it. They should not be killed. Uh, or shot or injured in any way, shape, or form, no matter how obnoxious their satire might or might not be. And then we had this shooting over the weekend in Garland, Texas, where, uh, it, you know, it wasn't a group, it wasn't a, a publication like Charlie Hebdo. It was a group that was purposely trying to draw fire, real or otherwise, uh, from the from the Islamic community from the extremist uh, community frankly and they succeeded and uh, a couple of people showed up tried to uh, shoot them at this event where they were offering ten thousand dollars for the most obnoxious most insulting cartoon of muhammad so yeah so jimmy and i have been talking about this but there was a, a comment uh, today from some of the uh, writers at the satirical French magazine, Charlie Hebdo, which has continued to publish even in the wake of that horrific massacre last January. And uh, one of the uh, a couple of them spoke with uh, uh, Charlie Rose on PBS, according to Mediaite here. Jean-Baptiste Thore, a uh, film critic at Charlie Hebdo, said that there is absolutely no comparison possible. He said it with a French accent, but you get the idea. Between Charlie Hebdo attack and the shooting outside of the Muhammad cartoon contest held near Dallas by this anti-Islam group of Pam Geller's The American Freedom Defense Initiative. He said, uh, To be honest, I can't imagine the kind of comparison you can make between Charlie Hebdo attack January 7 and this event. Thore said the contest in Texas was part of a very harsh movement against Islamization. Of the U.S. He said that at Charlie Hebdo, the writers and cartoonists were criticizing religion, not Muslim people in particular. That's the distinction he makes. I'm not sure how well I how much I agree with that uh, uh, distinction in this particular case, but maybe I do. Anyway, if you have any thoughts on it, you can always tweet me at the Brad blog and uh, also over at uh, Facebook. I am. Uh, you can find our page there at the Brad blog, or you can send me email anytime. Uh, Bradcast at bradblog.com. Would love to hear from you. Love to hear from uh, you listeners out there who have jumped in since we've started Bradcasting daily. 
Uh, do I have a few minutes? Okay, let me do a, a few minutes here uh, on Chris Christie before we uh, we take a break and get to Ian Milheiser and the uh, Supreme Court case. Uh, Chris Christie now on Bridgegate. All right, last week, so we had these uh, indictments last week in the Bridgegate case. Um, David Wildstein, uh, the man who actually uh, made the shutdowns happen of the George Washington Bridge, he, he pled guilty to uh, two two federal charges and has promised to sing like a birdie about uh, everyone else who was involved, including Chris Christie, who he claims, who David Wildstein is still claiming, um, knew about the bridge closures, knew why they were actually being done when they were being done. He says, quote, evidence exists to prove it. So far, he has not come forward with that evidence. He has nonetheless pled guilty, whereas two of his compatriots, Bridget Ann Kelly, who was a, uh, a deputy uh, a chief of staff for Chris Christie, and Bill Baroni, who was an executive over at the Port Authority, uh, both of them have been charged with, I believe it was seven federal counts each. They have both declared their innocence, absolutely, despite the evidence that is in the, uh, in the, uh, in the federal indictments, showing their text messages, showing them celebrating about the closure of the bridge, uh, celebrating about the mayor that they were getting back at, allegedly, for uh, the Democratic mayor of Fort Lee for his refusal to endorse the Republican governor, uh, Chris Christie, in his reelection bid. Uh, but they have both firmly denied, and they look like they're ready for a contest. Here was uh, Bridget Ann Kelly after she was uh, indicted on these charges. With regard to the charges that have been brought against me, let me make something very clear. I am not guilty of these charges. I never ordered or conspired with David Wildstein to close or realign lanes at the bridge for any reason, much less for retribution. That was Bridget Ann Kelly declaring her innocence and Bill Baroni also indicted on seven charge charges, uh, he too is declaring his innocence in no uncertain terms. I am an innocent man. So, and he, he goes on uh, to be very clear, like Bridget Kelly. He looks forward to the trial. He wants to uh, testify in his own behalf on day one. So this thing is going to court, man. And this is going to be quite a contest, quite a contest. Chris Christie is now Chris Christie, who is still running for president or still says he's going to run for president or says he's considering running for president, says if they want to subpoena me, that's fine. I'm happy to tell everybody everything I know, which I've done with three separate investigations, said the governor. I don't have any misgivings about that at all. So there you go. Chris Christie, Bridget Kelly and Bill Baroni all declaring their absolutely innocent so this thing is going to trial most likely for bridget and uh um and, and baroni for kelly and baroni there could be more charges who knows the uh, the governor himself could be dragged in with either charges or as subpoenaed in this uh in these trials the governor uh the i'm sorry the lawyer for bridget and kelly says he will subpoena anyone at all who he feels uh, everyone involved is the word uh, he's prepared to uh, subpoena everyone involved to establish his client's innocence. So 
Well, this will be fun. Keep the popcorn popping. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Come back on uh, marriage equality in the Supreme Court. The big enchilada. Is this all? Uh, is this it for all 50 states? Ian Milheiser will be joining me after the break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. If if you're anything like me uh, with everything that was going on last week in Baltimore, you may have missed one of the uh, most notable court cases to show up uh, before the Supreme Court in, uh, frankly, decades, perhaps. Uh, that was the case of Obergefell versus Hodges, which will, uh, by the end of June, perhaps, essentially legalize marriage equality in all 50 states. Uh, a very important uh, oral uh, uh, hearings at the Supreme Court, and very few people actually talked about it, including us, because everyone was looking at what was going in Baltimore. So we hope to make up for that error today with my next guest, Ian Milheiser. He is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress uh, Action Fund, the editor of Think Progress Justice. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, L.A. Times, U.S. News and World Report, Slate, The Guardian, American Prospect, Yale Law and Policy Review, Duke Law Journal. And his first book is Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian Milheiser, my friend, welcome back to the broadcast. Good to be back. Thanks so much. Great to have you here. Okay, uh, let's pretend you're talking to someone who was completely distracted last week <laughs> and has no idea what the issues were uh, at stake in the hearings uh, at the Supreme Court on marriage equality. I believe there was two different issues uh, that were discussed for about two and a half hours. What are they? And, you know, essentially, what are the options that we're looking at uh, come June when the court makes its uh, probably landmark decision in this case? Sure. So this case is really the culmination of many or at least two decades of slow walking that the court has been doing in the gay rights space. Um, so in 1996, we got our first major gay rights decision out of the Supreme Court. It held that a law, that a constitutional amendment that was passed in by a state solely for the purpose of being nasty to gay people, mm -hmm. that that's not allowed. And then in 2003, the Supreme Court said that we weren't allowed to criminalize, states aren't allowed to criminalize gay sex. In, uh, you know, almost 10 years after that, the Supreme Court struck down marriage discrimination at the federal level. So they've been slow walking this thing. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they've been doling out every few years. They'll give a few rights at a time. And this is the case that finally presents the big question that everyone knew was coming. When the Constitution says that no one shall be denied the equal protection of the laws, does that include the right of same-sex couples to get married? Um, I think, you know, the good news is that based on what I heard at oral arguments, though it's probably going to be a 5-4 to four decision, the Supreme Court is going to say that the answer to that question is yes. Mm -hmm. um, and they say the answer to the question is yes. That's the end of everything. There's this separate question of 
whether states have to regulate, um, whether states have to recognize marriages that are performed by another state. But that issue doesn't even come up if they do what I think they're going to do on the first question, which is say, yep, every state's got to allow people to get married, you know, to marry the person that they want to marry. So when you say, uh, well, you, you say slow walk, I, I suspect the court would say that they've made basically narrow decisions uh, along this path, uh, along this path over the last uh, several decades where they decide one piece and then they move to the next and they decide the next piece. Um, and we get to the point, as you say, where there are now two questions before the court. I just want to restate to make sure that I understand them clearly, as do mm-hmm. listeners. So the, 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 the two issues here, the main one is equal justice under the law, as required by the Constitution. That marriage is a fundamental constitutional right. It can't be denied to one group over another. Uh, and and the second and the idea, I guess, also that LGBTQ folks are to be a protected class. But we'll get into that in a moment. Um, so you've got that first question about whether it's a fundamental right. And if so, all 50 states, then I guess have to allow uh, marriage equality. Then the second part is if the first question, if the answer is no, will states have to recognize marriages that are uh, gay marriages that are carried out in other states. But that one doesn't matter if they decide the right way on the first issue. So do I, I understand all of this correctly so far? Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, that's what was before the court. Now, in that first question, then, they will decide, uh, is it correct, they will decide whether marriage is protected, period, or do we get into this protected class business and, and whether uh, uh, gay people are a special protected class that civil rights laws must uh, also apply to? Well, I mean, the, the real answer to that is that there's so many different ways that the Supreme Court could decide this case, mm-hmm. all of which lead to marriage equality. So, you know, one way which, you know, several of the more liberal members of the bench seem to be pushing is they could say that, look, there's a long line of, of decisions saying that marriage is a fundamental right. States have to have an extraordinarily good reason to deny it to someone, and they don't they have able to articulate any reason in this case, at least any reason that makes any sense in this case. So mm-hmm. they, could, they could do it that way. You know, another way that they could do it is that they could say that um, gay men, lesbians, bisexuals have historically been subjected to irrational discrimination. And what I mean by irrational discrimination is that they've been discriminated against in a way that has nothing to do with their ability to contribute to society. And the Supreme Court says that when there's a history of that kind of discrimination targeting a separate, uh, specific group, that group enjoys heightened protection under the Constitution. And again, a state has to have a really, really good reason to deny them equal treatment under uh, uh, under the law. And if they That's determine another... if they determine that, and they make them a legally protected class, then that decision applies to a whole bunch of things above and beyond. Uh, just marriage equality, right? That that gets into uh, whether you can fire someone for being gay, whether a landlord can, uh, you know, not uh, rent a, a, an apartment to someone because they're gay. That that opens up a whole new can of worms, doesn't it? If they go that direction, okay. that, that's exactly right. I, I mean, I mean, the the best possible outcome for gay rights is a decision saying that heightened scrutiny applies to any law that discriminates on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, now, that said, I think the court's probably going to go a third route 
And the reason I say that is, you know, I, I, it boils down to three words, Justice Anthony Kennedy. <laughs> um, you know, Kennedy has written all three of the court's most important gay rights decisions up to this point. Um, he's generally, he generally votes the right way on gay rights issues, uh-huh. but, you know, his opinions, frankly, aren't particularly coherent. They normally don't, like, hew very closely to established doctrine. A lot of his decisions read like he strung together a bunch of cast-off lyrics from the age of Aquarius and, you know, made it into a judicial opinion. Ian, and, Ian, wait a minute. Don't don't be insulting uh, Justice Kennedy at this point. You need him to decide the right way. Why are you uh, slinging all these arrows at him? <laughs> I mean, I, I want his vote, but it doesn't change the fact that he's not a very good justice. Okay, I mean, all right. You, you, you know, his, his, his opinion, you know, and, and, and that has consequences, you know, the, the when Kennedy writes, he tends to write, at least in the gay rights space, he tends to write in terms of vague principles like dignity. Uh-huh. And, you, you know, it's nice that he thinks everyone should have dignity, but that provides much less guidance to the next judge down the road. Because it's so not a it's, legal principle, the idea of dignity. It's a, it, 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 Exactly. I see. You know, it, if he said what the court's precedents say he should say, right. which is that, look, you know, Gay people have been subjects to this very particular kind of discrimination. Groups that are subject to that kind of discrimination get heightened protection. Therefore, any time um, a state or the federal government discriminates against gay people, the courts have to look at that law with a high level of skepticism. You know, that's what the Constitution, that's what the constitutional precedents say he should do here. It's a really easy case if you just follow the, the constitutional precedent. Uh-huh. And I think, unfortunately, you know, partially because the, the court's been reluctant to go too far too fast, and partially because Kennedy's just being Kennedy, um, the court has made this a much harder case than it needs to be. Well, I uh, just for the record, I think uh, Justice Kennedy is fantastic in all regards, a great human being and uh, a wonderful writer. Just want to get that out there. Okay, with that in mind... Uh, <laughs> In his uh, last argument on uh, on gay rights issues, the uh, Windsor and Doma uh, case, Defense of Marriage Act cases, uh, as, and the decision on California's Prop 8, and even on the voting rights case, I thought that the Obama administration's Solicitor General Donald Verrilli was terrible, frankly. And I think that Windsor and Prop 8 were won uh, despite him not because of him. And while I didn't get a chance to listen to his arguments last week in this case, which is, you know, the whole enchilada when it comes to marriage equality uh, across all 50 states, uh, I didn't get to uh, hear the arguments, but I got worried all over again when I read the first uh, paragraph of the piece that you wrote right after oral arguments, Ian Milheiser. You wrote, quote, Before oral arguments began in uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, the consolidated cases challenging marriage discrimination under the Constitution, a Supreme Court decision in favor of marriage equality seemed like a near certainty. After Solicitor General General Donald Verrilli, the second of two lawyers to argue in favor of equality, took his seat, the outcome of the cases seemed much less secure. So uh, how did Verrilli do this time, and uh, do we have reason to worry about his arguments? And by the way, I don't know how you feel about Verrilli in, in past arguments, but uh, suffice to say, I have not in, been impressed. 
so I, I should clarify. I mean, I was I didn't write that paragraph as a slight on Verrilli. I think Verrilli actually did a really good job in this, good in in this argument. You know, I wrote it more to describe you know before the the side arguing in favor of discrimination got off what the mood in the courtroom was. Okay, and at that point. Kennedy in particular, I mean, the, the, so the line that the conservative justices advanced, and Kennedy seemed to glom onto this at points, was that they kept using the word millennia. For millennia, there hasn't been marriage equality, so why should we have it now? Um, and, you know, there are a number of problems with that argument. You know, one of those problems that Justice Ginsburg raised mm-hmm. is that the reason why marriage equality hasn't existed in the past is because for those many of much of those millennia, marriage was an inherently sexist institution. You know, in this country, for the longest time, women could not could not own property if they were married. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the 1970s that a man was first prosecuted for raping his wife. So, you know, a, a woman couldn't even refuse consent to sex with their husband. I mean, that's what the law was until very recently. Um, and if you think of marriage in terms of gender roles, where there's a dominant man and a subservient woman, and that's just the way that it works, well, then I guess you've got to have one man and one woman in the marriage, because otherwise you don't have both gender roles. Um, we don't think of marriage that way anymore. You know, we think of it as an egalitarian, uh, as, as an egalitarian institution with yeah. two equal partners. And if you think of marriage as being a bond between two equal partners and not between two partners who have to fill certain roles, then all of a sudden the argument for marriage discrimination breaks down. And that, um, and, no, go ahead. Well, no, and that was sort of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's response to the conservatives on the court saying, hey, it has been one way for millennia and now you're trying to change it. You're trying to redefine it. And I guess, uh, in short, she was saying... Marriage has always been redefined over those same millennia that millennium that it was, you know, originally, as you as you explained and as she did, uh, it was a contract. It was a, a property uh, a contract, essentially, where the man owned the woman. And right. that, yeah, I mean, that has been changed uh, as as part of the definition of marriage. So why not continue to evolve that definition? Right, yeah. I mean, the basic argument is that, you know, the, the definition of marriage has already changed. We no longer define it as a union between one man and one piece of property that their parents may have kicked out for them. Right. You, you know, we, we, you know we, 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 it's now a very different relationship. And so this argument that, oh, God, you're redefining marriage, well, first, we've already done a lot of redefining, and thank God that we have. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that, that's the point that Justice Ginsburg raised. Now, in the second half of the oral argument, when, when the, the, the side in favor of discrimination got up, they made a completely head-spinning argument. They didn't even really try to push this millennia argument. Their argument, and I, you know, I want to try to, to, to represent this fairly, because uh-huh. it's a confusing argument, but their argument is that gay people can't breed, and if we allow a class of people who can't breed to get married, then that sends a message that marriage isn't really about children, it's about adults. And if we send a, mar- a message that marriage is about adults and not children, that will lead to more children being born out of wedlock. 
that, that was their argument. And I'll leave you and your <laughs> listeners just to ponder that for a while to see if you can figure out how many logical leaps you have to make in order to get there. Which I mean, would, it, which it, would it, mean you would need to uh, make it illegal for, uh, well, you, you would have to do a, a test before any, uh, got, anybody got married to make sure that they could uh, breed, that they could have children. So if you're a 70-year-old couple, you would not be allowed to get married, I guess, under that definition. Uh, if you have no intention of having children, you would not be allowed to get married under that definition. And this is what the attorney, John Birch, who was arguing against marriage equality, this is a serious argument that he was actually putting forward in the, in the U.S. Supreme Court? I mean, I don't know if I call it a serious argument, but it was indeed <laughs> that he was putting forth in the Supreme Court. Um, it got him in a lot of trouble. I mean, you know, the, the, the part where it began to look like we were going to get Kennedy was, you know, Kennedy really objected, you, you know, in Windsor and in mm -hmm. you know, past discussions of gay rights. You know, Kennedy has focused very much on the fact that there are a lot of children being raised by gay, by, by gay couples. Mm -hmm. And, like, he was very offended. He felt that the implication of Birch's argument was that gay people can't be good parents. And it was clear that Kennedy disagreed strongly with that viewpoint. Um, you know, he also disagreed at one point, you know, I mentioned before that Kennedy likes to throw around the word dignity a lot in his gay rights opinion. Mm -hmm. And Birch, the attorney arguing against marriage equality, out of nowhere says, look, marriage is not supposed to be something that grants people dignity. That's not what it does. And Kennedy was furious at that assertion. He said, I thought, that's, I thought that was the whole purpose of marriage. Um, so, you know, Kennedy asked some questions in the first part that made me a little nervous, but by the end of it, I thought it was clear that, if nothing else, the sheer weakness of the argument in favor of discrimination made him realize what he has to do. Now, this decision, uh, I think no matter what, is going to be a five to four decision, either for or against. I, I think at least everybody expects that to be the case. I suppose it could be uh, six to three if someone like uh, Chief Justice Roberts comes around and, and does the right thing here. I, I guess he's not expected to join the others in support of legalizing marriage equality, but we don't know. But uh, his children, as I understand, are adopted. So how does Chief Justice Roberts justify the arguments uh, being made, or maybe he doesn't touch it, th that marriage is about procreation? I mean, in his case, it's not about procreation. He adopted. So, Or, or, or does he not even... Uh, does he not even discuss that in his questions in any of these uh, hearings uh, last week or, or in previous cases? Yeah, I mean, Roberts, for the most part, you know, he, he seemed pretty clearly in the camp that was likely to uphold discrimination here. He did ask one question that I thought was interesting, where he suggested that um, marriage discrimination might be a form of gender discrimination because, you know, Joe can marry Tom, but um, Joe can marry Tom, or rather, Joe can marry Sue, but Sue can't marry Tina or whatever. You know, the idea was that certain people are only allowed to, uh, certain people allowed to marry women and other people aren't. Certain people allowed to marry men, other people aren't, and that's a form of gender discrimination. In the end, though, I don't think it's likely that Robert is going to, um, is going to vote the right way here. You know, part of it is because of what he's is because he's what part of the reason I said is because of what he has written in the past. Yeah. But a big reason why is 
you know, the reason why he adopted his children, my understanding, is that he and his wife, um, for religious reasons, object to fertility treatments. And, and so they, they adopted because apparently they thought she would need fertility treatment. Uh-huh. And I mean, that is a varsity level of cultural conservatism right there. <laughs> like, you know, there, there, are, there, are, there are people who object to abortion and there are people who object to birth control. But, uh, you know, I, I think that to object to fertility treatments, that is a sign of a particular kind of social conservatism that I think is going to make it difficult for him to come around on marriage equality. Well, you know, it's interesting that you point out he raised this uh, question that I hadn't really heard uh, raised before about the, you know, gender uh, issues and gender inequality. I wonder if that's a signal that uh, as, you know, with Obamacare, and his decision where he sort of went a completely different way. He sort of went a third way in order to uh, justify allowing the subsidy, the federal subsidies in Obamacare to move forward. Is it uh, feasible that these justices, particularly the chief justice in this case, Roberts, is looking at this question, this decision, looking at history and thinking, boy, how do I get on the right side of history on this issue, even if I have to come up with a, you know, sort of a third way to make sense of it, a third way to uh, to to decide correctly on this case? Do you have any sense? Do justices think about that sort of thing, about, uh, you know, being on the right side of history in a case in a landmark case like like this one and and you know like the the case that allowed interracial marriage and so forth i imagine that the justices who were against that probably didn't feel so good about it 10 or 20 years later looking back yeah so i mean here here's the thing like i mean nothing's impossible and you know there is certainly some speculation that Roberts, the reason why he voted the way he did in the first Affordable Care Act case is because he realized what a huge political blow it would be to the legitimacy of the court for them to strike down this law on a party line vote mm-hmm. on you know in, in that in that political environment. Right. And so you know, Roberts has shown some understanding of the fact that like if his court appeals too partisan, that's going to cause a problem. You know that said. This is the guy who struck down the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. You know, if it's not, it, you know, I haven't seen too many sides of John Roberts that he's worried about being on the wrong side of history. Well, but remember, in the Voting Rights Act, as I'm sure he would say, oh, he didn't strike it down. We just changed one section because it needed to be redefined. The old definition, you know, needed to be redone by Congress. In that case, I could see him worming his way out of saying he was on the wrong side of history. In this case, uh, you know, this is done, if I understand it correctly. If they end up, uh, five uh, justices end up deciding in favor of uh, marriage equality by saying you cannot, that the Constitution, as currently written, bars discrimination against gay couples when it comes to marriage, this thing is over. And I do wonder if he's thinking about being on the wrong side of history there, but am I right, Ian, when I say that this thing would be over, or... Are there other avenues that some of these 50 states who, uh, you know, these dead-ender states, uh, are there other avenues that they may be able to bring forward? Or is this done? They must do it, and uh, it's, you know, nothing left but uh, to, to print up the licenses in every state. Yeah, I mean, I suspect we might see some signs of resistance from the dead-ender states. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be... 
I, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be considerable. I mean, I mean, I, I'm giving this interview right now from Washington D.C. There's been marriage equality in D.C. for a really long time, and somehow we've managed to avoid having like the Ku Klux Klan march through the streets and gain some massive resistance against marriage equality. So, like in most locations that have it, it's been, you know, it, it's been a nothing burger of an issue, including in very conservative states like South Carolina. Um, now, it is true that in Alabama right now. The Alabama Supreme Court is throwing a fit and try and you know trying to halt a decision that handed down by a federal judge that supported marriage equality. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it may be that they'll continue doing that, but if they do, they're going to get smacked. The argument, because, the argument that it's a federal decision that does not apply to us because we are a state and state laws don't have to. I mean, that that's something that's been. Uh, decided uh, decades ago that yes, federal law does supersede state law. Correct? Yeah, we we, we fought a civil war over that. Yeah, like uh, you know, Alabama doesn't get to decide what parts of the Constitution it wants. Gotcha. To that's just that's just not how it works. And just to be uh, just to confirm for our listeners in Alabama, should the Supreme Court decide? Should they have a, frankly, conservative reading of the Constitution and find that there is nothing in there that allows uh, for for uh, marriage equality to be banned at the state level? If marriage equality is allowed in all 50 states, it will not be mandatory. Correct. You don't have to marry someone of the same sex. Am I right, Ian? Well, I, I know, like all of us, uh, all of us here in evil liberal Washington are working very hard to make gay, gay marriages um, <laughs> mandatory because it's the only way we can destroy the institution of marriage. Yes. that's what George Soros is, in fact, paying me to do. No, of course it's not going to. Of course it's not going to be mandatory. You, you know, I mean, the whole point of this is that people should be able to choose their spouse. And, and, I, and I make a, a joke out of that. I've been making that joke for years. But it occurs to me every time I hear someone arguing against it, like, yeah, even if someone else is allowed to do it, nobody's going to force you to do it. So settle down, Skippy in Alabama or Mississippi or wherever else you are. Uh, This is going to be very interesting. The decision will come down, I, I guess, in June. Looking forward to that. We may have you back to talk about that by then or even beforehand. Ian Milheiser constitutional law expert from Think Progress. It's always great to talk to you, my friend. All right, thank you so much. Thanks, Ian. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and come back with Desi Doyen and the latest Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Oh, that can only mean one thing. Desi Doyen joins us for the latest Green News Report. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right, Desi Doyen, the uh, the, the bodies are piling up. <laughs> the Republican clown car is yes, filling up. It is indeed. And uh, as we have been doing since the very first one jumped in, Ted Cruz, I think, was the first one. We have been trying to detail each and every one of their uh, climate positions in the Green News Report as they jump in. So yes. with uh, three, three, count them, three new ones. Now we're up to six uh, with I hear there's 
two or three hundred more left to go. Actually, I, w- wouldn't it be easier if you're not running for pr- uh, Republican nomination? Please raise your hand. I think that will be an easier way of keeping track how many uh, people are getting into this Republican race. All right. Oh, come on. Be honest. You like it. It's fun. It'll make it more interesting because we'll have more things to make fun of. I didn't say I didn't like it. I just said it's ridiculous. But in any event, uh, okay, let's do it. Uh, Our latest Green News report. The 2016 race for the Republican presidential nomination just doubled in size. Maybe those things aren't scientific. Maybe it's just propaganda. Fox News darling Ben Carson jumps in. If we want to accept the science, we have to read the fine print. Former CEO Carly Fiorina jumps in. The heading is a far greater threat to an American than a sunburn. Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee jumps in. Climate change deniers all. Plus, the Pope's moral message on climate change. All of those messages, moral and immoral, straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. What all the scientists also tell us is that a single state or a single nation acting alone can make no difference at all. No, that's not what they say. That's what the scientists say. Sorry, Carly, you're wrong. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, before we get to the latest pack of deniers to join the 2016 presidential race, I want to take a moment to bow my head, if you will, to someone (laughs) who is not a denier, Pope Francis. They have just finished their climate summit at the Vatican, and the Pontifical Academies of Sciences and Social Sciences has released a statement saying, quote, in the face of the emergencies of human-induced climate change, we join together to declare that human-induced climate change is a scientific reality, and its decisive mitigation is a moral and religious imperative for humanity. Wow. Could you hear the heads at Fox News exploding left and right when the Pope said that? And actually, a Cardinal, Peter Turkson at the Vatican, went even further. He said, quote, a crime against the natural world is a sin, and to cause a species to become extinct is a sin. That's a pretty big statement. Oh, sin. Now they're really going to have trouble with this at Fox News. I guess they'll just start ignoring it. That may be the best thing. Uh, but we won't ignore the new Republican nominees for the 2016 presidential election, and I think that's where we go today. Oh, yes. Three more Republicans are now jumping into the race. They are retired surgeon and Fox News darling Ben Carson, former CEO of Hewlett-Packard Carly Fiorina, and former Arkansas governor-turned-Fox News host Mike Huckabee. Now, you may be shocked to learn that those three new contenders stand firmly in the climate science denial camp. What? In print interviews, retired surgeon Ben Carson agrees with Republican senators and candidates Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and Rand Paul that the climate is changing, but that's because the climate is always changing and it's not human cause, so we should keep burning fossil fuels. So at least they believe climate is changing. They just think it's just a coincidence that it happens to be going on. That's right. On Meet the Press back in March, Carson said that even though he doesn't accept the science of evolution, science should still inform policy. But then he suggested it depends on whose science. People say, how can you be a scientist? How can you be a surgeon if you don't believe in certain things? Maybe those things aren't scientific. Maybe it's just propaganda. Maybe. Maybe they are. Maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe 
Maybe he's got it right and you've got it wrong, Desi Doyen. <laughs> and maybe I think I'll choose another surgeon if I if I need any medical care. Former Hewlett Packard CEO Carly Fiorina says if climate change is human caused, the U.S. should not lead on cutting emissions because it will hurt our economy because China won't follow along. Do we really think the Chinese are going to follow our lead on this? No, they're not going to follow our lead because they're focused on their own economic self-interest. Yeah, actually, yes, they are not only following our lead, they are leading us. Since the deal that uh, they made with Barack Obama... Six months ago he made that. She said this after the deal had already been made? She said this last month, and it was six months ago that President Obama signed that historic emissions reductions deal with China. And they are leading. They are going right now much farther than we are as a country. Within the next 13 years, I think it is, they are going to build a United States worth of renewable energy. That's right. they can do it, we can do it. But not if we have, uh, pardon me, clueless, failed CEOs like Carly Fiorina running for president. As for former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, he questions the global scientific consensus that the rise in global temperatures is caused by burning fossil fuels. At the Iowa Freedom Summit in January, he said ISIS is the bigger threat. He said the greatest threat this nation faces is climate change. But, Mr. President, I believe that most of us would think that a beheading is a far greater threat to an American than a sunburn. I wish he understood that we have a real enemy. And I wish that Mike Huckabee understood that a hell of a lot more Americans have already died thanks to climate change and certainly will die thanks to climate change than will die from beheadings. For much more on those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Oh yeah, you've got your own version of the truth. There's only three things left now. Desi Doyen, how did we never use that song before? I know. uh, That's Brooks and Dunn, for those who are interested. It's a very funny song, and I can't believe we didn't know about it until now. We're going to have to use it a lot during the 2016 presidential campaign. Yeah, we're going to wear it it down. Uh, Yeah. Well, speaking of, uh, we are Brooks and Dunn with today's broadcast. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other that you'd like to hear, including that interview with Jimmy Dore yesterday. Uh, You can stop by, of course, bradblog.com, where we always post our shows, as well as iTunes, where you can subscribe for free, Stitcher, where you can subscribe for free, TuneIn, where you can subscribe for free. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, and to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn. My thanks also to Ian Milheiser of Think Progress. Org. We'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at The Brad Blog and, of course, at bradblog.com. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.